BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This week in China's history, January 15th, 1935. Zunyi, the three-day meeting that pushed the CCP toward Mao. Written by James Carter. Published in SubChina. Read for you by John D. Van Fleet. The Chinese Communist Party has a thriving trade in anniversaries. The centennial of the party's founding in 2021 was a nationwide celebration. Each October 1st, the People's Republic commemorates its founding. May 4th is often marked as the start of modern Chinese nationalism. We could throw in October 10th, the start of the revolution that ended the Qing dynasty and is celebrated as Taiwan's National Day, as another moment of revolutionary change that was part of the path to the People's Republic. But if I had to pick one date that cast the die toward China's future under CCP rule, I might choose none of these. On January 15, 1935, a warlord's palace in the remote mountains of Guizhou was the setting for a meeting that, over the course of three days, changed China's political course for decades. Not that many people noticed at the time. In January of 1935, the communist movement was struggling to survive. In 1927, the party had been dealt what most observers felt was a mortal blow, massacred by their supposed allies, the Guomindang, in Shanghai. Only a few communist armies eluded extermination. Since its founding in 1921, the Chinese Communist Party had relied on support and advice from the Communist International, Comintern, the Soviet Union's foreign policy arm. Personified by European agents, like Otto Braun and Henk Snivlit, the Comintern endorsed an orthodox Marxist view of revolution insisting that the communist revolution would come, first, after a nationalist revolution that would empower the bourgeoisie, and, second, through the actions and will of industrial workers. These two premises had driven the CCP's successes of the 1920s, but had also left the party vulnerable and unsuspecting when the KMT turned on it. The decimated party faced not only a literal battle to survive, as Chiang Kai-shek, focused on eliminating what remained of the communists, but also an ideological one. The Comintern's approach had provided funding, arms, and international recognition. But could its urban and industrial model work in China? Not everyone thought so. Mao Zedong was among those who theorized that China's communist revolution could be fueled not by its few industrial workers, but by its peasants, which he redefined as a semi-proletariat. Mao, who had been part of the communist movement from its beginning, but not until now a very important part, saw his standing increase swiftly after the debacle of 1927. Many of his opponents had been eliminated. 
those who survived were inclined to question the wisdom of the policies that had led to the massacre. Mao began building a movement that reflected his policies in the mountains of Jiangxi, developing his theories of guerrilla warfare. Quote, the enemy advances, we retreat. The enemy camps, we harass. The enemy tires, we attack. The enemy retreats, we pursue. End quote. Mao's armies lived and worked among the peasants, frustrating Chiang Kai-shek's attempts to eliminate the last of the communist forces. Mao's Jiangxi Soviets stubbornly persisted, evolving into a small state with its own infrastructure, currency, and bureaucracy, all protected by its mountain refuge. The success of the Jiangxi Soviet proved its undoing when the CCP leadership, Europeans like Brown, and Chinese who had trained in Moscow, earning the collective name the 28 Bolsheviks, gave up their attempt to rebuild an organization in Shanghai and arrived in Jiangxi to take power. Besides their doctrinaire approach to revolution, the Comintern CCP leadership took a conventional approach to military strategy and tactics, rejecting Mao's insurgency methods and preferring standing armies and pitched battles. Whether it was because of communist tactics, nationalist strategies, or the disparate resources each side brought to bear, by the autumn of 1934, the Jiangxi Soviet was untenable. In October, 100,000 communist soldiers and supporters broke out of the nationalist encirclement and began what would become the origin myth of the CCP, the Long March. It took the communist armies two months to break through the last of the nationalist defensive lines, but by the end of December they had made it out of Jiangxi, through Guangdong and Guangxi, and into Guizhou province. For a week, they rested and resupplied. Then, the leadership decided to take stock. Starting on January 15th, about 20 party leaders gathered in what had been the home and headquarters of regional warlord Bai Huizhang to discuss past mistakes and possible ways forward. Exactly what was said, and even who spoke, at the meeting is not entirely clear. In his 1986 China Quarterly article, Benjamin Yang notes that the most common record of the meeting, that Mao himself and then General Zhu De began the meeting by attacking the Comintern and decisions that had led to the collapse of the Jiangxi Soviet, is unlikely. Rather, Yang argues, Bo Gu spoke first as chairman of the conference, giving a report on the political situation facing the party. Then, Zhou Enlai reported on the military situation. At that point, Mao ended the conference's first phase with his well-rehearsed and detailed criticism of the party's leadership in Jiangxi. For two more days, delegates debated what had gone wrong and how to move forward. Momentum turned quickly in favor of Mao's faction, accompanied by future party leaders like Peng Dehuai, Zhou Enlai, Chen Yin, and Lu Xiaoqi, Otto Brown sat in the corner fuming, both metaphorically and literally, as he consumed pack after pack of cigarettes while his leadership was attacked. A litany of mistakes were laid at the feet of Brown and the 28 Bolsheviks. When the conference ended, 
the Comintern line was determined to have been wrong. Mao's military strategy was deemed to have been correct. It is tempting to say that at this moment Mao became the leader of China's communist movement, where he would remain for four decades. This was the effect of the Zunyi Conference, but it is not quite so straightforward. The Zunyi Conference was a critical stepping stone on Mao's path to leadership, but its results depended on what followed. When the meeting ended, Mao was a member of the five-person Politburo Standing Committee, but was neither the party nor military commission chairman. He was Zhou Enlai's assistant on military matters. His star was in the ascendant, but his formal power was limited. But from another perspective, Mao had achieved much at the meeting. As Yang writes, quote, Mao for the first time became one of the five top leaders of the entire party and won the right to decide all important party and army actions. More than that, he developed a reputation as the only man who had represented a correct party line in the past and who had the potential to lead the revolution to victory in the future. This first step led Mao to the supreme leadership. End quote. In the months that followed, Mao was affirmed in decision after decision. Communist forces survived and reorganized. Conflicts in the party remained, but at each juncture, Mao and his allies gained the upper hand. It may be, as Yang argues, that the Zunyi Conference, quote, was just one step in Mao's bid for supreme power, end quote. But it was an essential and decisive one. So if we acknowledge Mao Zedong as the single most influential figure in China's 20th century, then let's mark the date that his power in the party was confirmed. January 15th, 1934, as a crucial milestone.